Buffalo Bill safety DeMar Hamlin is breathing on his own and can speak again after his breathing tube was removed. He had a cardiac arrest on the field during Monday Night Football. CBS's Nora O'Donnell. The Buffalo Bills will honor Hamlin on Sunday wearing number three patches on their uniforms. There will also be tributes across the league, including warm-up shirts that say love for DeMar 3. Teams, including the Patriots, have highlighted in blue the number three on their field. People in Idaho are feeling relieved now that there is a suspect in custody over the murder of four university students there. This woman lives nearby. It took a while, you know, for this evidence to be gathered and everything. And so people were kind of getting, you know, frustrated and thinking, you know, that there was a killer on the loose. You might want to look up this weekend as some state space debris is expected to fall from the sky. But NASA says the odds of anyone being hurt by a 38-year-old satellite are about 1 in 9,400. Most of the 5,400-pound object is expected to burn up in reentry, but a few pieces are likely to survive. This is CBS News. If you're a business owner renting or leasing, you can save a ton of money and own a custom-designed building made by General Steel. Just call 888-74-STEEL and get a quote today. Attention! If you owe money to the IRS, this is an urgent message. The IRS is cracking down by sending out heart-stopping letters, aggressively garnishing paychecks, seizing bank accounts, and putting liens on homes and businesses. They call it enforced compliance, and you better watch out because penalties and interest on unpaid taxes compound daily, making it seem impossible to ever get out of debt. Don't let the tax debt destroy your life. You need to call Optima Tax Relief, the number one tax resolution firm. They're experts in the Fresh Start Initiative, one of the biggest breaks that the IRS has ever offered. If you qualify, you could save thousands. Optima's resolved over $1 billion of tax debt for their clients. A-plus rated with the Better Business Bureau, they'll fight to get you the best deal possible. Call Optima now for a free consultation. Call 800-343-6460. 800-343-6460. 800-343-6460. Optima Tax Relief. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, please visit Optima. Santa Aurelia LLC pays for this show. The views expressed by the hosts and guests on Inside Track are their own and may not reflect those of KVOI, but they should. People try to put us to death. Just because we get around. Hello, Insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you, wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, along with special guest Bob Wells, former uh, retired U.S. Navy Captain Bob Wells, uh, also U.S. Uh, National Security Advisor to Dick Cheney. Coming to you live from the luxurious Wilkinson Wealth Management Studios located in the KVOI Broadcast Complex. Welcoming you to a special American imperative edition of Inside Track. Producer Tom also joins us running the board and taking your calls. I want to remind you to please support our great sponsors, Tucson Iron and Metal Retail, 209-1576. Corazon Cabinets, you can reach them at 488-2266. And Essential Pest Control, Eric and his crew at 886-3029. Also supporting Inside Track is my co-host, Eb Wilkinson from Wilkinson Wealth Management. Eb will help you retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call for Eb at 777-1911. 
Eb and I support all of our great locally owned, family run businesses who support our show. So should you. We have a special guest who we've been waiting to hear from through the post-election legal process period. Uh, he ran for state attorney general. Abe Hamaday joins us now to give us an update on a crazy close election. Abe, where does your campaign stand at this moment? Thanks for having me on, Bruce. You're right. It changes all the time. You know, sometimes, you know, we don't have things go in our favor, but it seems like every single day that passes by is just, increasingly coming into into our favor but just to uh, update your listeners you know there was a state mandatory recount that that just occurred last week and the results showed that the that we were losing by 511 and now it's we were the deficit is now 280 votes which is quite significant bruce because usually recounts in arizona history by the way recounts have not shifted a net uh result by more than 14. This was by 230, 231 in our favor. So it's quite shocking. And a lot of the discrepancies came from one county in, in Pinal County. And uh, if you look at every single day this goes by, we have more evidence coming to light. So, you know, this the recount is separate than an election lawsuit. Sure. And I really want the listeners to understand that a recount typically is just putting the exact same ballots through the machines, typically. But Pinal County had their screw up or they discovered some ballots. But what our election contest is looking at and why we're still fighting this, I mean, we have every right to fight this, Bruce. This is the closest race in Arizona history in terms of percentage. Um, you know, I, I really am concerned because in 100 years from now, and if there's another situation like this, I want to make sure that there's good case law and precedent for what we're about to do. But we're asking the courts, going back to Mojave County Superior Court, to allow us to inspect the ballots and to count the ballots where the voters' intent was was made and on the ballot, and we didn't have that opportunity afforded to us uh, back when we were doing our initial trial, just because of the time constraints. But there's no time constraints right now in Arizona. We have removed the sitting statewide office holder before, and that's where the election lawsuit uh, precedent comes from in Hunt v. Campbell. So the state of uh, the state of the election, you know, I, as much as everybody wants to try to move on from it. I, right now, with the closeness of this race and the fact that there's still hundreds and even thousands of uncounted ballots, provisional ballots that we are sifting through, our data team and myself, I mean, this race is, you know, I, I don't say this lightly, Bruce, it is not over as long as the judge allows us to inspect the ballots. And a judge recently ruled in other cases that unless there is intent uh, even making uh, serious errors wouldn't change results. Uh, but your claim your claim is different and probably more relevant from the other contestants. Do you agree? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're actually saying that even with all the fiasco of Maricopa County, which everybody recognizes, it was a complete disaster. Right. right? I mean, we saw Maricopa County just appointed the former Supreme Court justice to lead their investigation into the printers. But we're saying that we have the vote. That, that's, that's what's a little bit different about us, Bruce. We actually have the votes. They're, they're banked in and just allow us to inspect the ballots. So a lot of times in races, voters, uh, they tend to maybe perhaps skip over certain races or not. And uh, in our case, the eight attorney general's race, there's about 75,000 what we call undervotes. So people who supposedly skipped that race. But we're asking to inspect those ballots because based off the data we have, off the limited the very, very limited hand count 
of the recount situation, we were picking up votes significantly in many different counties. And, you know, every county prints their ballot differently. So it's almost similar to the hanging Chad situation, if you remember back in Florida, Bruce. But, you know, we feel very confident. And I, I don't say this, I, I believe me, if anybody wants to move on, it's me. But I say this with a it was pretty confidently that if we're allowed to inspect the ballots, we have the votes. And uh, that's what we're asking the judge to give us a new trial. Now we have a lot more time. Plus, a lot of the evidence just came to light in Pinal County due to the recount uh, situation. And, you know, it's, it's what's really concerning to me, Bruce, is that at the time, Secretary of State Katie Hobbs was aware of the issue in Pinal County and did not disclose that to me or to the court. And she's trying to use that there is a gag order based off the recount, um, uh, based off the recount in Maricopa County. That's where it was filed. But that's not, I mean, only a fool would believe that. You don't have to disclose the recount numbers, but you can certainly say, Your Honor, there's a large discrepancy in, in the recount. And that's what we're looking at, too. I mean, so that's why we filed the new motion for a new trial. And, uh, you know, to be quite honest, to go from 5.11 to 2.80 is really significant because it was such a, you know, d- disparity right there where we picked up 420 plus votes. She picked up 190. I mean, that, that's what allowed the margin to be reduced by that much. So, you know, I think there's definitely new energy into this new legal battle that, that I'm continuing to fight. And was the judge uh, that's going to hear this case, was that a Ducey appointee or a Napolitano or a prior appointee? Not that so it makes all the Mojave difference. County. Yeah, this is the Mojave County. It was a Jan Brewer appointee. Uh, in a Mojave County, they actually do elected judges up there, uh, Bruce. Um, so, uh, you know, we're, we're just, I mean, right now, this new information would have been really critical to our first trial. And uh, it, it, it wasn't allowed to be presented because we didn't have access to it. But Secretary of State at the time, Katie Hobbs, did. So this that's what's really concerning to us is, you know, how could we successfully challenge an election if we're handicapped and if there's a, if there's the government knows one thing and is not disclosing it to, to me? And you know, I'm a former prosecutor. You know, as a prosecutor, I had to disclose all of the evidence to, to the opposing counsel, especially exculpatory evidence. So that, that's what you know, is so concerning. And, you know, as much as Democrats and the media like to say democracy is on the line, yet it seems like they're the ones so scared to actually take a deep dive into this race. You know, I, I am fully you know, prepared to accept defeat if we are actually defeated. I think that we, it is unknown right now. I mean, the amount, the recount did not confirm anything. It just opened up more questions. Right. The, the recount, if it went from 511 to 520 or 511 to 500, okay, you know, we could see some slight variables. But from 511 down all the way to 280, that is a shockingly high number. So that's why I'm continuing this legal battle, and I owe it to Arizonans because I think at this time we need some balance at the state executive levels. How do, how do uh, Arizonans, or anybody for that matter, who might be listening uh, in other states, uh, we live stream around the world, how do people help you out, Abe Hamaday? Well, you know, right now we have our website is abeforag.com, abeforag.com. We have, you know, we have very generous donors covering a lot of the cost of our legal battles right now, Bruce, which has been really fantastic. And I think everybody recognizes this is so important for the future of election integrity. You know, everybody wants to act like, you know, America and our elections are so perfectly run, but that's not true. There's always room for improvement. Maricopa County had a botched election and Pinal County had a botched uh, ability to show the results. So 
we got to get down to the bottom of this. That's why I'm fighting. And I, and I hope your listeners also just keep paying attention. They can follow my Twitter feed um, at twitter.com and my handle is Abraham Hamaday. But thank you so much, Bruce, for allowing me to update your listeners. Well, hey, best of luck. Keep us uh, informed. Uh, we cer- you certainly have a open invitation here at Inside Track, and I hope uh, elsewhere, both here in Tucson as well as up in Phoenix. Abe Hamaday, candidate for Attorney General, uh, the election as far as Abe is concerned, and like you said, he'd like to move on too, uh, but his candidacy is still alive as long as uh, there is a judge and uh, uh, this uh, matter can be heard. Abe Hamaday, thank you very much and best of luck to you. Thank you, Bruce. Appreciate it. All right. Mr. Producer, let's go ahead and take our first break. You're listening to Inside Track on KVOI, Trusted Local News and Talk. When we return, we'll speak with the author of a new book, American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. You are going to need and want to stay tuned for this. Dan Runday, uh, he'll be spending the balance of the show today. Hey, no station flipping, y'all. We'll be right back. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing. And then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through. But that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house. We sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. This is Eb Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management. Are you letting rising inflation interfere with your ammo budget? Don't do that. Let us show you how to buy the same goods and services 20 years from now as you can today. We manage money for gun owners and we can guide you to retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911 or WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. We invite our listeners to call in to 520-790-2040 during today's chat and let producer Tom know if you have a relevant question for our next guest, Dan Runday, on his new book, The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. Dan Runday is a... Uh, Senior Vice President and Director of the Project on Prosperity and Development and holds the William uh, Schreier Chair in Global Analysis at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. That's quite a mouthful for a University of Arizona graduate. Mouthful. That's quite a mouthful. (laughs) His experience is in the Americas and Africa. He serves on the board of the International Foundation of Electoral Systems, Uh, our our immediate uh, uh, 
preceding guest, uh, Mr. Abe Hamaday, and you might have an interesting talk together. He is uh, contesting an election uh, for Attorney General here of the state of Arizona, where he is uh, now... Uh, 280 votes uh, short of uh, of a victory and uh, uh, is concerned about a bunch of votes that weren't counted. Anyways, Dan is a, is Spanish fluent. He spent his college days in the Upper Valley at Dartmouth College and has a master's uh, in public policy from Harvard University. We will try not to hold his Ivy League background uh, Don't uh, against Don't hold him. it against me. <laughs> <laughs> his new book, The American Imperative Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power is due out in one month through Bombardier Books. Uh, I have with me here today uh, retired U.S. Navy Captain Robert Wells. He's a former National Security Advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney. Uh, he is uh, he has scoured uh, your um, your presentation uh, backwards and forwards, upside down, and uh, uh, just real quick before we get to Bob uh, with some uh, pertinent questions, that I think you will appreciate uh, Dan. Uh, CIS CSIS's purpose is this is the the organization that Dan's with is to define the future of national security. It, his website says we are guided by a distinct set of values, nonpartisanship, independent thought, innovative thinking, cross-disciplinary scholarship, integrity and professionalism, plus talent development. CSIS's values work in concert toward the goal of making real-world impact. Bob Wells, meet Dan Runday. Well, thank you very much, Bruce, and hello, Dan. Welcome to Inside Track here in beautiful Tucson, Arizona. And I will say I'm very, very much impressed by your your work. I had a chance to read the entire uh, pre-published uh, part of the book. And, and CSIS, uh, I was obviously attending many of the different uh, uh, sessions that you had there at CSIS uh, since, you know, Ambassador David Abshire and and recalling again the beginning of CSIS with uh, Admiral Arlie Burke. So, but congratulations on the American imperative, and uh, I think it's a very important work with regard to American leadership and where we go for here. And and I'd like to ask you the first uh, question with regard to why you actually thought that you needed to put a book out like this to re- recapture the American imperative in development, in particular, and. Uh, in particular, how closely have you been watching China and looking at how China has entered the arena with regard to development aid globally? Thanks a lot. I'm so pleased to be on this show. I really wish I was with you all in the studio, <clears throat> but it's amazing what technology can do. I'm so grateful you all are hosting this this uh, call-in show for uh, the American Imperative. And, um, yeah, I... Um, I've been at CSIS uh, for 12 years. It's been a very generous home to me. Uh, Like you, I was in the Bush administration. I was at USAID in the Bush administration under Andrew Natsios. And I learned sort of the the business, if you will. You know, it's the foreign aid arm of the American government. And I saw, I've been in Washington now for about 20 years. I was at, at USAID in the Bush administration for five years. I was at the World Bank Group for four years and i've been at csis for 12 years i've sat on a number of boards and bruce was talking about a couple of them on the international foundation for electoral systems board i'm also on the board of a of an investment fund that has been uh, standing up private enterprise in moldova and ukraine for more than 25 years and i'm happy to talk about ukraine and moldova at some point as well but i you know i um 
One of the things I've noticed in my time at CSIS is the growing power of China. And I think the Trump administration's national security strategy and the Biden administration's national security strategy have noted that our primary competitor, in the, that we're in an age of what they call great power competition. So we are, these are, you know, China and Russia uh, have power and we're competing against them. And so it, I kind of call it exactly a second Cold War but unfortunately, it sort of rhymes with the Second Cold War. And so my thinking is, having, we've, done, you know, we've done many reports. I've worked on, I've probably traveled to probably at least 70 countries professionally in my career. <clears throat> I've served on a couple of American government uh, advisory commissions, um, for, you know, as, as the chair of a number of American government advisory commissions. I just see that they are China is filling a void. And I wrote this book because if one, I believe we are in a period of great power competition, but great power competition isn't going to happen in Moscow or Beijing. Great power competition is going to happen in Guatemala City, in Kiev, in places like Jakarta or uh, Astana, Central Asia, or Mali, you know, uh, Mali or Senegal in the developing world. <clears throat> and the way it's going to play out isn't necessarily militarily, though I'm all for military power and have a great appreciation for it. But much of our competition with China are going to be things over vaccines, as we've seen recently, or whether or not who builds the, the digital infrastructure of the future. We shouldn't want China controlling the digital rails of the future in the developing world. <clears throat> who, what values are at stake? We should be standing up for democracy and human rights. We're an imperfect uh, advocate for it. We're an imperfect society. But if we don't do it, no one else is going to do it. So I wrote the book because I've been in Washington for 20 years. I've been around the soft power game for a long time. I've seen that China and in partnership with its minor partner, Russia, are really serious challengers to us. And, and the way in which this challenge is going to play out is in the, it largely, but not solely, in the non-military realm. And I know something about that. And I thought I wanted to have a start a national conversation about this because I think we have to kind of go back to the drawing board, rethink what we're doing, and we need to have a 20-year plan that, Republicans and Democrats can get behind. I'm a Republican. I proudly served in the Bush administration, but I think we need to have something that that can sustain over a number of administrations um, to you know to challenge China. I think we can ultimately prevail. I'm optimistic. I'd rather be us than them, but we got to get our act together. Well, you certainly have raised the alarm, as you mentioned, in American imperative, and I think uh, the fact that you're bringing the term soft power back to our listeners is critically important. And we're also, as I recall, sitting across from Andrew Natsios in, in some of the interagency coordination meetings, especially during the Bush administration, post 9-11, we stepped up with regard to helping other countries. And uh, for our listeners, we're not starting from scratch. You know, we do have an existing toolbox, you know, with the USAID. Uh, we also have the Millennium Challenge, which uh, President Bush established uh, and that continues to support the development, developing world. We had the President's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR, among others. And uh, certainly, uh, that's a strong foundation. But you mentioned this vacuum. You know, how, how do you see and how have you described in Amer American Imperative how to rebuild 
our soft power capacity? So I think I, you're absolutely right, and it makes me very happy that you mentioned Andrew Natsios. He's my, my friend and my mentor. I owe a lot to Andrew Natsios. He's a hero for our time. <clears throat> he was USAID administrator in the Bush administration, and in the Bush administration, uh, because of the response to the global war on terror, there was an understanding that we needed to have use all facets of our power to respond to the challenges that we faced. Um, and the Bush administration did a number of really important things. For example, that bending the curve on AIDS in Africa, There's yes. that we've been able to manage AIDS in Africa and in a lot of other places in the developing world because the Bush administration spent a lot of political capital on it. Um, a number of places like Colombia, uh, you know, 25 years ago, Colombia was a basket case. Today, Colombia is a place where a lot of people want to go on vacation. People want to go and invest in Colombia, and it's a wonderful place. It's had a couple of hiccups recently, but compared to where the heck it was 25 years ago, it's a different place. Um, same with some of the emergency responses. There was that terrible tsunami in South Asia, and uh, the generosity of the American people really mattered, not only because it was the right thing to do, but before the tsunami in Indonesia, Osama bin Laden had a higher approval rating than the United States of America. But al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden did not respond to the needs of the Indonesian people. Mm -hmm. And we showed up for them, and our, our numbers flipped. And the approval, you know, obviously we did the right thing in responding and helped save hundreds of thousands of lives in Indonesia after the tsunami. But people understood that we'd been there for them, and they really appreciated it. And that stuff matters, as you know. Yes. Um, so it, you're right. And so I think my, my point is we've got a new set of challenges today. China is a, is a real competitor. They can feel even different than 15 years ago or even 20. When I got into this business 20 years ago, China was not on the radar screen. China was a recipient of foreign aid. <clears throat> Russia was seen as a potential partner. A whole thing, they've gone in bad, both of those countries have gone in very bad directions in the last 20 years. Russia's, you know, we, I don't think we need to, you know, we can talk about Russia and what their illegal invasion of Ukraine and all the other stuff, bad stuff they're doing. <clears throat> but in particular, China, <clears throat> what they've done, they're able to, they are just a very wealthy <clears throat> country and they can throw their weight around. And so we have got to wake up and smell the coffee. They are they are often the largest trading partner in many developing countries. In many countries, they are offering to build infrastructure, some of it dual use, which you know what that means, so meaning that mm -hmm. an aircraft carrier can park there or a, boat, a cruise ship can park there or a really long airplane strip so that a fighter jet can land on it or a 747 can land on it. Dual use infrastructure, but also they've got all of this this digital stuff. There's this company called Huawei and their partners, ZTE and their other partner, Alipay. That unholy trinity of companies, if they get their hands on owning the digital rails of the future in developing countries, it means all the data that happens in all those countries is going straight to Beijing. <clears throat> We're not going to want that, and those countries aren't going to want that. When I talk to African countries, I talk to countries in the Americas, they want more American business. They Dan, want more Dan, American investment. Dan, I'm going to ask you to leave it there just for a moment. We need to go and take our bottom-of-the-hour break. And when we do, we'll be right back with Dan Runday, uh, his book, 
an Amer- the American imperative. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to TucsonIronRetail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? (sighs) No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. This is Ed Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management reminding you that every good and excellent thing stands moment by moment on the razor's edge of danger and must be fought for, including getting out of debt, building your wealth, and protecting your God-given right. We manage money for gun owners. Let us help you retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me at 777-1911 or WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. We're chatting with our special guest, author and foreign policy thinker from the Center for Strategic and International Studies about his new book, Dan Runde, uh, The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power, which is out on February 7th. Uh, Dan, uh, I'm going to cross um, I'm gonna cross over um, uh, pop culture with, with a real problem here. Uh, I'm a fan of a show on Netflix called Borgen. And uh, the the uh, emphasis of the show this season has been this Danish uh, prime minister uh, and her foreign minister uh, who are dealing with Greenland and a oil expedition that's going on there. And uh, the way that uh, the Chinese had muscled their way uh, building a new harbor there. So we've, we've sort of stated the problem. You've stated the problem very well. Um, Captain Wells uh, and I want you to talk about what the solution is. So I'm going to turn you over to Bob here uh, to to take it from this point. Yeah, looking at the multilateral system as you've written in American Imperative and and what needs to be done, I think one of the key places to begin is the uh, Chinese influence at the United Nations. And you brought this up in the book. I found it fascinating to have uh, an actual how came we here uh, discussion in terms of the Chinese and what they've done in, in the World Health Organization Obviously, we've just continuing to go through the COVID-19 uh, response, but their influence and how they influence these organizations, uh, the International Civil Aviation Organization, which is crucial. But how do we get the Chinese out or how do we rein in uh, the Chinese at the United Nations and in other multilateral areas? Well, I, I really appreciate the question. What what the heck do we do about all this, this problem? <clears throat> and I, you know, I'm, yes, I'm at a think tank. 
But one of the reasons I wrote this book is to say I wanted to get everybody on the same page to agree that there was a problem. I think there's been a, I think in Washington, there's been a, a significant understanding in the last five plus years. And I think one of the things we ought to thank the Trump administration for is to help move the national conversation and to move a national consensus towards that we got a problem with China. And now I think with the Biden administration, I think it's a bipartisan understanding that we have a problem with China and we have a problem with Russia. We, you know, in an ideal world, we don't get in the shooting war with them. But at the same time, and, you know, to the extent in a very limited way, if we have to and can work with them and cooperate with them, we should try and do so. But I think we what we haven't been able to come up with is, is what the heck do we do about this problem? So I think everyone's in large agreement in Washington that there's a problem. And the reason I wrote this book partially was to say, here are some areas where we might move forward on. And one of them is absolutely in the multilateral space. There are about 200 or so multilateral organizations. <clears throat> some of them are, you know, really obscure and some of them are really darn important, even if you don't, one doesn't follow them on a day-to-day basis. So this includes things like the World Bank. The World Bank's a really important organization. Another really important organization is the International Monetary Fund. But there are about what I would describe as about 20 to 30 very important multilateral institutions, what I call the commanding heights of the multilateral system. Yes. And we and we don't want the Chinese Communist Party running those organizations. Now, for a long time, both in Republican and Democratic administrations, the thinking was if we share some of the leadership of some of these institutions with the Chinese Communist Party, they'll become what was described as a responsible stakeholder. Now, maybe that'll still happen, but I think many people in Washington, both on both sides of the aisle, have concluded that China is not likely going to become what's described as a responsible stakeholder in the multilateral system or in the in the system that was set up after World War II. And the multi so as a result in the last 20 years they've the Chinese Communist Party in particular has done a very good job of putting forward very capable and very qualified candidates for key roles in the multilateral system. And I talk about in the book some of the examples, and you've referenced some of them, uh, Bruce. But I think my, my thinking is that, uh, and, and Bob, I think that the, you know, my thinking is that we, first of all, needed to realize there was a problem. And only after we had our teeth kicked in in an, in an obscure election for something called the FAO, where the United States of America put forward a candidate from another country, and we got 12 votes, and the Chinese Communist Party got about 120 votes. Did we realize we had a serious, serious problem? What's FAO? Yeah, FAO. Yeah, and this is like they're sort of the you know they're the they're the standard makers to whether or not a lemon is considered a lemon or not, or a grape is a grape, right? They're the standard setters. Say, is that a grape? Is that a lemon? It's more complicated than that, but that kind of stuff really matters for things like global trade or for agriculture. This stuff matters. So they're a big standard setter. These multilateral institutions, sometimes they control standards. Think of it like VHS or beta, if you're old enough to remember, remember those sort of standards for, you know, for those cassette tapes and those video cassette tapes. Or for things like mo- they've got a lot of money. 
They also have, they set all sorts of rules of the road on all sorts of important things. Uh, and so... OECD is another? Yeah, that's a big one. That's a really important one. Again, not often heard about, but it's the club of market democracies. It's a big deal institution that many of your listeners may or may not have heard of, but it really matters. And it was it came out of the, the Marshall Plan. It was the secretary to the Marshall Plan. And it's a place where many countries use it as a forum for de- debating things like standards on global education, things like combating corruption, what kind of digital standards for the Internet or trade, and many other things. And so the, the current head of it is excellent. He's a center-right uh, former finance minister from Australia, very pro-American, has a very uh, clear-eyed view that, that the Chinese Communist Party, I'm, I'm saying putting words in his mouth, I'm not sure he would say this himself, but I'm, this, is, this is how I interpret it. He's got a, a free market view of, of how the world works, and I think he's a really good leader. My, my point is these leadership jobs matter. In the Reagan administration, they talked about personnel as policy. Well, guess what? In these multi-law organizations, the same thing matters. So as you mentioned earlier, um, for example, some of the more obscure ones but important ones like the ICAO, uh, yes. uh, which is the, the you know, they we there was someone from China that ran that, and they came in there and they kicked Taiwan out of it. And we named, there was somebody at the WHO who was from Hong Kong and was a little too friendly with the Chinese Communist Party, and she went and kicked the Taiwanese out of the WHO. And the if you look at what happened with COVID, I think many people would argue that the the current head of the WHO was a little too friendly with the Chinese Communist Party for about five different reasons, one of which was that in, in his native country of Ethiopia, uh, China is one of the largest trading partners. And so they instead of going to, you know, calling it a COVID emergency when they should have called it a COVID emergency, they sat on it for a little too darn long because China, it was going to embarrass China or upset China. So that's the kind of influence that the Chinese Communist Party's got. So the first thing is we've got to notice it and say we have a problem. Second, then we got to show up. It's not 1995 anymore. I know I've got family members. I don't want to out my, my, some of my close family members who would say the multi-lot, the UN system is a pain in the neck. Why the heck is the United States involved in the multilateral system? Why the heck is the United States paying those to the United Nations? Because if we don't, China's rich enough and big enough, they can fill that void. Do you really want the multilateral system run by, by the Chinese Communist Party? The answer should be no, because you will not, we will not like the rule set that they'll come up with. They're anti-democratic. They don't like religion. They don't like markets. And we're not going to like it. And so they will impose their their authoritarian system will their finger their authoritarian fingerprints will be all over the multilateral system in ways we won't like. So there's a temptation, I think, sometimes in the Republican Party to there's a temptation sometimes in the Republican Party to say, well, well, the heck with it. We don't want to need to be a part of the multilateral system or the United Nations. Well. That maybe was a was a position one could take 25 years ago and maybe get away with it. We can't get away with it today. 
We can't say we're going to stop paying our dues. We can't say we're quitting because most, A, not anyone else is going to follow us. And B, the Chinese and the Russians will laugh at us and will fill the void that we leave. So, so David, we spent approximately, by, by some official figures, uh, about a trillion dollars in Iraq cleaning up a mess there. Uh, that's a lot of money and a, and a lot of men and women that we lost as well. Um, the United States of America, and, and you know, I, I'm not a big fan of foreign aid myself, but in, in the current environment, 1% of our budget goes to foreign aid. We blow a half a trillion dollars on crap that nobody gives a rip about anywhere except for some guy or gal who's, who's doing a study someplace. Um, China has been spending money uh, hand over fist developing airfields, developing harbors, helping with transportation systems, buying ports, the ports of Haifa, for example, and, and, they're, and they're weaseling their way into, into ports here in this country as well. If we took uh, our, our foreign aid and actually deployed it in sort of a Marshall Plan sort of uh, strategy, uh, making friends and influencing others, is that... Is that the soft power that you talk about as opposed to guns and, and missiles and, and death and destruction? Yeah, so I think, I think that the, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, I think, have impacted how many people in the United States think about how we engage in the world just in general. And I think many people were deeply conflicted and upset about how, what happened in those, in those two contexts. And so I think many Americans have been tempted to say, we would like a timeout from global leadership. We would like to not focus solely on, on weapons. Or we'd like to not necessarily have to, to, to be the world's cop. At the same time, my message is, I understand the, the frustration. At the same time, they, China is not giving us a chance for a timeout. And the, the way in which they're competing with us isn't necessarily a military competition. And it's things like you were describing, whether it's roads or bridges or it's their telecom systems. Sometimes it's the soft, more soft stuff like this vaccines. They, are, they have been using what's called vaccine diplomacy. So they've gone to countries in Central America like El Salvador, and they've said, okay, since you recognize us over Taiwan, because that's a big part of the West, one place in the world where they compete is in, in the Americas for who recognizes Taiwan or mainland China. Since you recognize mainland China, we're going to give you the vaccines. So the countries like uh, Guatemala and Honduras, which have been countries that recognize Taiwan, something the United States wants is to have a handful of countries that recognize Taiwan. Those countries had to wait at the end of the line for vaccines because we didn't have spare vaccines to give Guatemala and Honduras. So the Chinese uh, were doing big vaccine campaigns in El Salvador in border towns with, with places like Guatemala. And it was sort of, and it was all over the Guatemalan press saying, if we would only recognize mainland China, we'd get the vaccines and we won't have to wait nine months. So if you'll remember there was that, you know, in, in, in the U.S., we were at the front of the line, but a lot of these countries, they had to wait a long time to get vaccines. So, yes, it's a we it, much of our competition is going to be in things like infrastructure. 
it's going to be like things like we saw with COVID with vaccines, or it's going to be things like closing the digital divide. One of the things from my, you know, most of us spent a year sitting on our couches during COVID. We all learned to order stuff online, learn how to use Zoom. Guess what? In the developing world, the same thing happened. There was enormous acceleration of what's called the digital transformation. So whether you're in rural Maryland or you're in Mali or you're in Malaysia or you're in Moldova, we're going to close the digital divide because high-speed Internet's the new electricity. So we're going to have high-speed Internet in all these places. And it's either going to be closed by a consortium led by China or it's going to be a consortium led by somebody else. My vote is for somebody else. Well, I think want... I think that somebody else is actually going to be established with your book, and I think it's coming at the right time, and you're going to really get the interagency on the right page. And as you knew from the Bush administration, when you had other challenges at the National Security Council with Iraq and Afghanistan, that sometimes Darfur and Sudan, other other uh, challenges. Uh, didn't get addressed. Now, you you advocate the multilateral policy council within the, within the National Security Council, and I think much like the Truman administration, it, it, there is going to be a need for a period of reform in order to address this new world, and it's going to take presidential leadership. And certainly, your book is going to be a foundation for that. What type of uh, organizational uh, change you you mentioned the multilateral policy council in your book? Uh, you know, channeling our joint uh, Andrew Natsios, uh passion for uh, the American way of helping people. What, what type of uh, efforts going to have to take place within the executive branch and within the Congress in well, order to so I, enable these institutions? Well, thank you so much for that question. So I think we've had a series of barnacles attached to, we, <laughs> we set up a law, we set up a law uh, in 1961 called the Foreign Assistance Act. John mm-hmm. F. Kennedy read a book called The Ugly American, and it shocked him to his core. And if you're listening, please go out and read my book, The American Imperative, and then go out and read The Ugly American, which came out in 1958. And he was so shocked by that book, he bought 100 copies for all of his colleagues in the Senate and sent it to every single one of them. And when he became president, the book was so shocking He did a series of reforms. He did the Foreign Assistance Act in 1961. He reformed the U.S. Information Agency. He set up the Peace Corps. And he set up the the Alliance for Progress, and he set up the Green Berets. So he understood that we needed to have a multifaceted forms of our power. So I think we need to go back and look at our the, the founding laws of our soft power, which is the Foreign Assistance Act in 1961. We need to, there's been a series of barnacles that have accumulated in the last last 60 plus years that need to be cleaned out. We need to look at, there are too many agencies doing various forms of our soft power. I'd like to have a smaller number. The foreign assistance at the time, President Kennedy said there were four agencies doing soft power stuff. That was too many. He created the U.S. Agency for International Development. We ought to perhaps take a page from that and, and take a look at that and think about who ought to be in the lead? My vote would be as we ought to empower the head of the U.S. Agency for International Development to have that kind of lead role. I think we also uh, need to take a look at our strategic communications in the world uh, in this age of disinformation and social media and everything else, but also the fact that China and Russia are really good at communicating, and then there are a bunch of super-empowered bad guys 
like terrorists and others who are unfortunately pretty good at communicating in ways we don't like, communicating lies or propaganda that we need to push back against. Um, I also think we need to revisit how we use some of our strengths. We are, we have hundreds of thousands of people studying in the United States, including in Arizona, and they go back to their countries and they change their countries for the better. Most people that come to the United States come back with a very positive view of America. They want to stay friends with the United States of America, and they are our friends for life. These are the folks that want to trade with us. These are the folks that want to do business with us militarily or business-wise. So the kinds of long-term training and education that we've, we've, we started doing in the 60s, we had to revisit it and rethink it for this new age. China is taking a, play, a, a copy from our playbook on long-term training and education. They are training new generations of Africans and Latin Americans. And we should not, we, should, we need to rethink how we think about this. So I think you're asking the right question. We need to be working with our allies in a different kind of a way. I think we're going to get a lot of interest in, from Canada and Japan and the Brits uh, and the Australians and the South Koreans. And I also think after this illegal, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, I think we're going to see a lot of people in Western Europe looking hungry for American leadership on this front. And so I think we can we can call upon a lot of folks wearing the white hats to counter the folks wearing the black hats. And so I feel I'm, I'm guardedly optimistic, and I, I do hope some of this can happen in, in the rest of the Biden administration. But I do also hope that we will get a you know a, a an enlightened leader in the Republican Party who will be elected in 2024. And I hope that uh, that person will you know will will enact many of the things that are in this book. Well, yeah, foreign policy experts like Mike Pompeo and uh, and. Uh Nikki Haley, that were yeah, U.S. Absolutely. ambassador, and, and certainly this book will influence that campaign for 2024. And I'm looking all the way back, uh, you really keyed on something that uh, uh, back in 2004, the Millennium Development Goals, the time to look ahead to reform uh, the United Nations and, uh, you know, inherit the wind. And looking at the leadership of the United States and the U.K. at the United Nations, you mentioned the OECD we're going to be in the post-COVID period as well. You got a new generation. It just seems like the timing's right for your book to become a, a really good mustard seed, as uh, as Steve Hadley used to say. What do you think? I agree, and I, I miss Steve Hadley. I, I really love serving in the Bush administration. There were so many talented people like you and, and Andrew Natsios and, and Steve Hadley, and it was the privilege of my professional life. And so I I see this book. Um, as an extension of sort of the, the thinking that I, you know, that I was heavily influenced by in my time in the Bush administration and then my time since. And I just think we, there's, yeah, I wanted to use this, I wanted this book to, to start a national conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on, on your show. I, as a, I wish I was, we were all in, in the studio together, but I think the technology makes it possible for us to do this uh uh, over the phone. And I, I really appreciate it. And yes, I, I want, I hope people go out and read, and think about the ideas in the book, The American Imperative, because that's what I want us to do, is I want to have start a national conversation about this. We can prevail. I am optimistic. We're a great nation, and we've got a lot. One of our superpowers is we've got lots of friends. And so if we, if we got friends, we won't be, you know, we're, we'll be okay. And so if we can direct lead and bring our friends along on some of these soft power issues, uh, I think we'll, we'll prevail.
Well, I think uh, the governance piece of it for the United States government is, is critically important, but I also think you have in, throughout your book uh, the importance of the private sector and also the public-private partnerships that we adopted with Millennium Challenge Corporation in the Bush administration. But if you have a chance to, as you continue to roll out your book, I would, I would say, uh, you know, continue to communicate uh, your book's promise uh, with that private sector and that public-private partnership as well in, in, in interviews on Bloomberg, for example, and, and uh, Fox Business, et cetera. What do you think? I think it's great. I 100% agree with you. Nine out of ten jobs in the developing world are in the private sector. So absolutely, we're, there's only so much foreign aid. There's so much, so much government can do. Government has a role to play. But ultimately, it's about human, you know, human, unlimited human potential is, is mostly unleashed through the private sector. What you want is for governments to set the rules of the game and then allow human flourishing to happen through civil society in the private sector. So I 100% agree with you. Well, Dan, uh, a wake-up call. Uh, when your publicist uh, contacted me about uh, talking to you about your book, I, I thought, gee, maybe he's onto something. Um, you really are onto something, and you're not just talking about the problem, which is what most people uh, focus on. You're talking about the solution. And uh, thanks very much for being on the show today. The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. You can pre-order the book now. And, uh, Dan, thanks so much for chatting with us today. I, I, good luck on the book, and I hope we can keep in contact uh, with the center. I, everybody, if, if you can, go to uh, it just tell people how to get to uh, the center uh, online. Yeah, CSIS.org. And my name is Daniel Rundy, R-U-N-D-E. And the book is American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power by Daniel Rundy. Thanks a lot. I so appreciate this opportunity. All right. Well, great talking with you. And I hope we can uh, continue to be in contact with you and use the center as a resource for the show. Absolutely. God bless you and God bless America. Amen. Amen. All right, insiders, uh, be sure to check out my Facebook and Twitter accounts for the latest news and and my views on the news. Uh, this was a really very very interesting uh, guest. Um, when when he, he there are so many different areas that Dan is going in, um, and, and it occurs to me that the comparison to the ugly American and JFK that was the wake up call. Uh, you know there's a wake-up call here to be made and i'm not sure and and i'm not going to pick on republicans or democrats specifically both parties have been have been guilty of having a short-sighted sort of uh, a role that american plays in the future don't you think bob i do i do bruce i think also uh, i just as you know i teach at the university of arizona the graduate level i think the 20-somethings that are in the audience also their parents here you have quite a bit of youthful idealism and uh, what President Kennedy did was to actually, uh, you know, bring forth that idealism with, you know, organizations like the Peace Corps and everything that, that Daniel uh, touched on with regard to making the world a better place. Certainly, uh, climate change or the global climate uh, area is a, a very important area for multilateral issues. But the human condition, making sure people have enough food, making sure uh, the United States is able to help uh, with that. Uh, for every one of our listeners out there, uh, the United States government itself, uh, for the, the smaller investment, as Bruce just mentioned there, provides a lot of capability in food and medicines and so forth, regardless of Chinese propaganda. 
Their uh, damn vaccine didn't work, work crap anyway. Our, ours does. And uh, so we we are a, a very smart people. We have great uh, intellect. We have great private enterprise in the United States. So I think uh, the future, uh, if we work through pragmatically and realistically, it's not a perfect world out there. It's the world as it is. I think books like American Imperative uh, show us the way, but our government has to be better organized. Customers well, come well, first. Well, that's going to do it for today. Until next week for Inside Track, this is Bruce Ash And Bob Wells. Wishing you all a very pleasant good afternoon. See you again in 167 hours. of Wilkinson Wealth Management. Are you letting rising inflation interfere with your ammo budget? Don't do that. Let us show you how to buy the same goods and services 20 years from now as you can today. We manage money for gun owners and we can guide you to retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911 or wilkinsonwealthmgmt.com. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. What other kind of customers do you have? So our Tucson? biggest customers are actually like ranchers and yeah. people from outside of the Tucson area. They're buying a lot of square tubing. They're buying a lot of stuff for their ranch to close off fences. We'll sell anything from 10 feet to 10,000 feet to somebody that comes in because we have new steel and surplus steel from steel mills. The reason we're able to get such good pricing on some of this stuff is A, we sell scrap to the mill. So uh, we have a relationship there and then we can buy material, what they're making, bringing it back. And so we save on freight and we have relationships for years with them. So I think that's really our niche market. We'll sell whatever you need. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. KVOI Cortero, AM 1030.